0: There's something, I'm just going to say it just, just now, because I want us to acknowledge it as a people, there is something profoundly good about hearing young voices declare the gospel to us. Can I get an amen for that? You know, it's, uh, my goodness, my goodness. I mean, truth, truth is truth, but then there's truth that hits differently when it's declared. It's not lost on me that, that Jesus talks about faith-like young people. You know, there's something about the depths of that expression, and yeah, and and I and I want us to just know that uh, that it's good to be a church where young people can read the gospel to us and be welcomed. That their voices are part of our community. Isn't it? isn't it just like I I hope you get that's intentional for us that we want to keep being welcoming to all people in all ages. So, um, just before I jump into the teaching, let me just say this: um, our Christmas Eve offering this year we had set out as a focus on young parents who are going through a uh, difficulty and some of the struggles and challenges that life may perhaps throw at them. And I just want to thank you for your generosity that in our Christmas Eve offering, we received over $10,000 in gifts from you. Uh, so thank you so much for your generosity. Um, I, I realize that for some of you, you just brought guests and you were like, put money in or else. But you know, thanks for that also, we, we appreciate it. It's January. <laughs> it's January. What? do we do with January? We pin up new calendars if you're, uh, if you're that type of person. The media is awash with new year, new you advertisements. But I wonder, I wonder if there's not just a bit of melancholy about us as we lean into January. And as I was prepping this sermon and you, you write lines in your notes and, and I'm like, is there a melancholy? Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's not you. Like, and then David said to us, amen. And we said, <laughs> and I was like, no, there's a little bit of melancholy in us all about January. It's like, yeah, I'm just not quite sure I'm excited yet about 2024. There's kind of weird mental and spiritual weight to New Year's these days, isn't there? Like, I want this year to be different from last year, but will it be? <laughs> like, like, I'm like, do I have the confidence to think things are going to change? And, and everybody tells me that I should sort of burst into 2024 like an Olympic sprinter, but... You know, unless you're part of some weird Christian community like ours, your Christmas lights have come down already. So it's a little darker. The Christmas credit card bills are beginning to arrive. So it's a little darker. (laughs) If 2024 is to be a good year, perhaps our question is, how? How will this year be better than last year? And if that's your question, I think this is why you need Epiphany Sunday. It's gorgeous, like a gorgeous but often missed feature of the church calendar. Kristen drew our attention to it before Christmas, but let's not miss it. That while the malls are celebrating with lights and telling you it's Christmas before December 25th, the church is still in Advent, and we're saying, hold on, hold on, not yet, not yet. And you're like, we want Christmas carols. How quickly you lost that fervor, by the way. We want Christmas carols, we want Christmas, because it has to come beforehand. And while all that was happening... The winter solstice happened. The darkest day of the year, it's not lost on me, that the darkest day of our year happens before Christmas. The before Christmas, while the world's trying to celebrate Christmas in advance and putting lights up everywhere and our Christmas trees are up and our Christmas lights are up and the malls are super exciting, nature's telling us a different story. Of course, what that excitingly means, if you really pay attention, if you look beyond all of the things, that right now, the days are getting just a tiny little bit longer. It's marginal, like you're not at work tomorrow being like, isn't it great, these longer days? You know, it's just, it's just a couple of seconds here and a couple of seconds there, but light is coming. It's a tiny little bit brighter. So in the church calendar, we finished Christmas on Friday. It was this 12-day celebration that goes from December the 25th right the way through to Friday. And then this weekend, you are authorized to take down your Christmas lights. But you're okay if you took them down early. I will pray for your souls. (laughs) I'm only joking. (laughs) But I won't pray for your souls. Um, (laughs) I realize I should clarify that. (laughs) And we can take down the Christmas tree lights now. And this is what's interesting in the tradition. Why do we hold these lights? Why do we hold this festival right through to the 12th? Well, one of the things that's gorgeous about it is, even though it's barely visible, like a new star shining on a distant horizon, there's a little more light a little more light. Don't, don't turn off all the lights on Boxing Day. Hold just a little bit longer until we just see this light is growing. And the church comes along 12, 13, 14 days later and is like Epiphany, illumination. Notice Isaiah in chapter 60 and verse 1, one of the gorgeous prophetic texts for Epiphany Sunday. Isaiah says this, arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And that's the declaration of Christmas. That's why we don't want to rush past this. We don't want to be waiting all year for Christmas and then just do it all in one day and be done with it. No, let's hold on because the light is coming and it came to us in the form of Jesus, the Christ child. A tiny baby. Tiny baby, kind kind of like the longer day at this time of year. Not easily noticeable, nothing to talk about, just kind of sneaks in. It's a few months before you realize, oh yeah, it's lighter again in the evenings now. Babies kind of sneak in for everybody else, not for the mom and dad, but they sneak in for everybody else. You don't make huge difference from the outside. We don't notice so much, but something has changed. Something major has changed. And Epiphany, Epiphany is one of the oldest celebrated festivals in the church. Actually, Christians have been celebrating Epiphany Sunday for longer than they've been celebrating Christmas. Christmas because it was this marker of light in the darkness. In years gone by, before this stuff was printed in your calendars or automatically updated in your iPhone diary system, in years gone by, you would come to church on Epiphany Sunday. And one of the things you were here on Epiphany Sunday to take note of was the announcement of all the movable feasts. You know, this is a few big events in the Christian year that are on a different date every year, like Easter, for example, because Easter's on a different date, Lent's on a different date, which means Ash Wednesday's on a different date. And in the long history of the church's tradition, you would gather on Epiphany Sunday and a priest or a deacon would announce to you these feasts. So imagine you'd be gathered in a room like this and somebody would come out and they would say, Ash Wednesday this year will be on the 14th of February. Which by the way, as a side note, that's true. Um, Even my examples are true. So this year, this is actually your notice that your Valentine's date this year, you are gonna have an Ash cross on your forehead. It's gonna feel weird, but as long as you remember that you both look like it, you'll be okay. We'll get you through it. And if that drives you to take your date to a drive-through, like you got bigger issues than an Ash Cross, right? (laughs) So the priest would announce Ash Wednesday is the 14th of February, Easter Sunday is March 31st, May 19th is Pentecost, and then they would look far ahead and say an advent this year will begin on December the 1st. Epiphany was a stake in the ground. It said, it's dark right now. We're just emerging from the darkness of Christmas time. We've escaped from the darkness of Advent, but more light is coming. I think there's something gorgeous at the end of Christmas. The look ahead was to resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is coming. Our salvation is secure. And every year as the calendar goes round and round, guess what? It gets brighter again. Winter in the darkness doesn't win and resurrection happens. This is the confession of Christmas. We said it on Christmas Eve, you hear it so often from John's gospel, light has come into the world and the darkness cannot overcome it. But Epiphany offers us more than that as well. Isaiah continues in chapter 60, this time verse three, but I kept 60 verse one up there just because it's good to not be perfect. And we noticed this in the first service and right about now I'm remembering that I said in the break, I'll fix that for the next service. So apologies, (laughs) Isaiah 60 in verse three says, nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. So it's no surprise to us if we're listening to these prophetic texts saying, light is coming, light is rising, light is shining upon you. What's the effect of this light? Isaiah says, the nations are going to come. Those who are outsiders, those who are far off, those who are not normally welcome, those who are different are going to come to this light. So it's probably not a surprise to us then that the Magi turn up in this story. And the Magi are perceived by the gospel writer as the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's traditionally held to be three kings that turn up. The Bible doesn't say that there's three of them. It just says that there's three gifts. And I don't know, you know, I mean, maybe they went doubles on a couple of gifts. I mean, gold is pretty pricey, you know. Maybe it was just one person brought a gift and they were like, Jesus, this is for your birthday and Christmas, Um, It's like layers to that joke. I told it in the first service. It didn't go down well, but I stuck with it. And you guys are my people. Thank you. (laughs) More importantly, here's what's quite fascinating. This is a modern uh, representation of it. But in almost all of the art that you see throughout the decades, when the three magi, the kings, the wise people, whatever they're referred to as, they're always represented or they should always be represented as three different ethnicities that they represent different people coming to Jesus. We get shepherds who are outsiders in society. They come to Jesus. And now we get foreigners. Like the Magi are completely out of place in this story. They're not Jewish. They come from far off. They're, they're watching stars. This is not a Jewish practice. In fact, actually, Jewish people be a little uncomfortable at the time of Jesus about somehow dealing in this sort of astrology type things. And yet somehow, and we can only say somehow, these magi are watching the stars and that result is it leads them to Jesus. This this bizarre non-Jewish practice brings non-Jewish people to Jesus. Why? Because they have come to worship him. Exactly what Isaiah promised. I love how Barbara Taylor-Brown explains it. She says, in the case of the Persian magi, their appearance in Bethlehem is as surprising as a delegation of Methodist bishops arriving in Dar- <laughs> to recognize the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama. If you imagine that scene, new Dalai Lama and some Methodist bishops turn up. If that would look weird to you, that's how weird the Magi story is supposed to look. Like, What are these people doing here in Jerusalem following a star that brings them to Jesus? The story's hinting to us. If you pay attention, it's telling you something. Before you get to Acts, and this becomes explicit, before you get to Paul's electrically inclusive theology, this Magi story is telling us that Jesus is not owned by one people, by one group, but that everybody is welcome to come and worship him. His light is shining and drawing all people to him. The outsiders are now at the edge, worshiping also. So this Magi story that was stunningly read to us just a few moments ago leaves us without any good excuse not to come to Jesus. You don't need to ignore the gospel text announced to us this morning. You don't need to ignore that restless heart that's looking for God because all are welcome, no matter how out of place they apparently look gathering around Jesus but for the magi it's a fascinating story and a story that continues to speak to us because they must pay attention in this story i wonder if you sense that in the narrative did you realize that it's not a straightforward story it's not just that the magi have to follow a star and arrive in jerusalem and, and come to herod and then realize they they it a little bit and have to reroute and end up back with jesus as they're supposed to it's not just that they have to follow a star as difficult as that may be i'm not sure how good you are at following a star If you're like me, I struggle following even the GPS sometimes. It says, go left. I'm like, I know better than this. And um, so when the major, I turn up with Herod, I understand that deeply. I'm like, it said go left, but we came right because we thought we knew better. I'm alone in that. It's like a whole church of people that follow maps. Well, okay. (laughs) But listen to this. It's not just that they have to follow a star. It's that they have to not follow Herod. So they have to listen and hear and watch and observe that the star is drawing them. But it's not simply, oh, we go from here to here. There are variant voices cutting across them. The text tell us Herod hears about this and he is troubled. And because Herod's troubled, the whole city is troubled. I mean, can you relate to that idea? It's an ancient idea. The idea that a particular leader be so unstable that when they get concerned about something, we get concerned about something? Or is that just in olden times? The Magi want to come to Jesus. They're being drawn to Jesus, but there are variant voices. Voices that are calling them to act differently. I hey, mean, my goodness, is this not our lives? Like this is my life. I wonder if it's your life. That following Jesus would be so, so much easier if there weren't so many variant voices. Voices saying things like, well, I want to come with you and I also want to worship the child, but there's a different and ulterior motive going on. And it's not just sometimes other people's voices that are getting in the way of me following Jesus. Sometimes it's my own voice. I can be the variant voice. I can be the person that gets in the way of the simplicity of me just following the way to Jesus to worship. So perhaps my epiphany question is, how do I find a path through through those and through that which would cause me harm and come against me? Perhaps that's our epiphany question. There's this stunning Epiphany tradition of, of blessing that has deep and long history in the church across various traditions, often done to houses. Depending on your tradition, you might be aware of this, that, that, that for many, many years, what churches have done is, is they've spent time blessing each other's houses and each other to mark Epiphany and its launch into a new calendar year. In fact, one of the traditions is to write these words or letters or symbols or secret code um, on on the lintels and doorposts of their houses. This notion of writing the first part and the last part of the date with, with crosses and CMB in between goes back quite some time. The CMB stands for Caspar, Melchior, and Belshazzar, these three wise kings as they're named in tradition. But in a nice little quirk, in the Latin, CMB is also a bit of an acronym for the, for the blessing, may Christ bless this house. And what would often happen is people would gather and people would do it in their own homes. You could do it in your own home if you wanted to. They would gather and they would pray a blessing that God would protect us in this house this year. That all of us who dwell here and pass through here would feel God protecting us from those variant voices that would come against us. And the Herods of Epiphany remind us that we do need God's protection. We do need God's guidance. Because it's not just spiritual things, sometimes physical things, but most of you are aware by now that 2024 is not going to go exactly as you hope. There will be moments and dates and, 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 and times and weeks and hopefully not longer than that of moments where, where it just feels like things are against you. And so the tradition of the church for many, many years at Epiphany has been to mark this moment and bless it. And while I would love to come to your house and bless it if you wanted, what I'd really like to do right now is corporately pray an epiphany prayer over all of us. Perhaps if you want, after we pray corporately, at the end of our service, you might want us to pray for you individually and and pastors will be here to do that for you if you want. I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to interrupt the sermon with a moment of prayer. I want to pray this blessing over you. And for some of you, It might just be words for others of you, you're gonna wanna hold on to this blessing as you head into 2024, because I don't know what 2024 looks like for you. There's possibly things ahead where you're like, my goodness, this is gonna be a tough year. And maybe you're not aware of the ways that this year is gonna be a tough year for you. We'll only know that on the 31st of December. But I invite you, just bring yourself presence to Jesus and hear the words of this blessing just now. May Christ bring illumination to all your paths this year. May you, your family, and your home be blessed by him as he remains with you throughout the year. And may the Lord keep you from harm and protect you from all things that would come against you and seek you harm this year. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seat? And As we turn now to the table... I hope we also know that the Magi don't just leave us with a blessing. As they begin their journey towards Jesus, they at some level begin not just their journey, not just their procession, but all of our processions and journeys. They recognize the voice of God as different from the voice of others because Jesus is at the center. Notice they're on the journey to Jesus. It's Jesus that they want to come and worship, so it's Jesus that directs them. It's why when they arrive with Herod they realize they're not in the right place. How can we we recognize the voice of God from all the variant voices in our lives? One of the ways is by keeping Jesus at the center. This is a famous icon of the nativity scene. It's been around in the church for hundreds of years. If you were touring churches in Europe, you'd bump into it in many regular places, and there's variations of it, and there's a whole story of the nativity going on in this. But this middle group of people on your left are the Magi. And they're always represented as close to, but not quite at, to Jesus. In all the variations of this icon that you'll see, the Magi are just not quite at Jesus. And the original writers of this icon, what they were doing was trying to tell us the story that the Magi begin a journey. They invite us to join into that journey. And, but also there's this realization that even though Jesus is already with us, there's a sense that we're also not yet with him. There's still places for us to grow, places for us to journey, a path for us to follow. The Magi are the representatives that we put Jesus at the center and we keep journeying towards him. I love this from Malcolm Gita, his epi- one, a part of his epiphany poem. He says this of the magi. They did not know his name, but still they sought him. They came from other where, but still they found. In temples, they found those who sold and bought him, but in the filthy stable, hallowed ground. Their courage, gives our questing hearts a voice to seek, to find, to worship, to rejoice. A friend asked me just recently about the way that we're moving towards taking communion more regularly at Westside and also about how we're changing how we're doing it, which is a great question, an important question to ask. And, and I, I hope you know by now I love good questions and I love dialogue around that. But as I was reflecting about the Magi's story, I wonder if they don't model for us why we need to take regular and not rushed time at the table. I began to think about it and this notion of being Jesus-centered. And I wonder if for some people, and this was definitely the case for me for a lot of my life, that being Jesus-centered was an idea. It was a concept. So to be Jesus-centered for a a lot of my life was about how do I follow Jesus' example? How do I follow Jesus' teaching? How do I put myself on a journey to be more like Jesus? But I've come to realize that I think that's a little too reductionist. The Magi didn't travel from afar in order to get some ideas. They didn't travel from far away to hear some teaching. They would have been sorely disappointed. They arrive, and it's a baby. It's a child, even if as some tradition says maybe they're two years you know, by the time they get to Jesus. Even that, I don't know if you ever had a conversation with, with a two-year-old. They're fascinating. They're interesting, but probably not the sort of thing you're going to cross a desert to find out. Right? So, so if the Magi are looking for a philosophy or a teaching or an idea, they've got to be slightly disappointed by the time they arrive. But notice what the text says, and notice even Herod And his words are rooted in fear and violence. But notice what he says, go and search for the child. We're not looking for a philosophy. We're not looking for a theology. We're looking for someone. We're looking for Jesus. And Herod says, although he says it badly, he actually says what we should all say. Go and search for the child so that I too may go and worship him. I don't want to downplay learning from Jesus. I am not going to downplay listening to Jesus, teaching. But it's more than that, that being a Christian calls us to be. If all that we're looking for is a teaching, then the danger is that Jesus becomes an idea. And if Jesus becomes an idea, then often what happens is the teacher becomes the center of our Christianity. And all of our faith rotates around ideas and talking. And we mistakenly communicate to the world that Christianity is not about an encounter with Jesus. And for all of the church's history, from the Magi to today, that's what's on offer, is to meet and encounter Jesus. Here's what I've become convinced of. A church is a church because it meets around the table. Not as just something that we occasionally do to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, but as a dependable place where we can meet with Christ and his spirit pour out into us from there. The early church, a cursory glance through Acts will tell you that the early church gathered regularly, it seems weekly, with the purpose of breaking bread together. They learned about Jesus they declared the gospel together and then they came to the table. And it's actually only very recently in church history that a small minority of churches have stopped doing this. So here's my tentative suggestion. And I realize that this may not be everybody's cup of tea and some people may think this is even offensive. But I've come to decide in my own journey that a service without a communion is good ministry, but it may not be church. For church to be church, we don't meet an idea of Jesus. We meet with Jesus in our spirits. We encounter him in something real. So so I want to keep confessing that communion is not an interruption to a service, but it's the trajectory of the service. Like the Magi, the journey is not from far to an idea, it's from far to the child, to Jesus. So we approach the communion table in prayer, in worship, in scripture, in teaching, but ultimately we arrive at the table knowing that this is where God is guaranteed to meet us. He meets us in all those other places too, but he's present to us in our prayers. As such, the reason we've tweaked some of the ways that we do Eucharist, we've changed some of our liturgies and forms that we've used, is to try and root us in the way that Jesus does communion. If you pay attention to the way that we lead through the communion prayers, they they model what we see Jesus do on the first communion. He takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread and he gives the bread and the cup to the disciples. And so if you pay attention over the weeks and months that come, you'll notice that prayerfully, whoever's leading you will do those things. Another gorgeous thing I think about these liturgies is they invite you to participate as well. Sometimes to just put your voice to an amen, but other times to respond with prayers, to say that we, all God's people, are inviting the Holy Spirit to be part of us because we are here to worship him. There's so much more to say about this. I'm not going to say it all just now, don't worry. (laughs) In January, beginning on the 18th, and I'll tell you a bit more about this next week, we're going to start hosting some midweek Eucharist space. And in one sense, it's a chance for us to meet around the table, but I also want to use it as a chance to explain a little bit more about why the Eucharist is so central for the church. But we'll talk more about that as it comes. For today, here's my invitation for us. Let's, like the Magi, turn our hearts towards Jesus and his table. And we'll do that now by affirming what it is that we believe. So why don't you stand together with me? I'm using just a short affirmation of faith today, but I invite you to say it. Allow it to build faith in your heart if your faith is down. Allow it to grow faith in others if your faith is strong. But I invite you together to say these words with me. I believe and trust in God the Father Almighty. I believe and trust in Jesus Christ, his son. I believe and trust in the Holy Spirit. I believe and trust in the three in one. Why don't you take your seat? As I've said to you before, the whole liturgy that we use around the communion table now is a prayer, a prayer for all of us to participate in. Sometimes we just offer our amen, sometimes we say more than that. But it's this journey of us towards Jesus like the Magi. But here's the invitation that I want you to remember. The table is for everybody. I am not the gatekeeper of Jesus. None of us pastors are the gatekeepers of Jesus. The table of Jesus is open for anybody who wants to come and receive from Jesus. And so, It's always a bad thing, we believe, for us to hold people back from the table. But sometimes there's something in our heart says, am I good enough, am I worthy, should I do it? And we want you to just hear strongly from us at Westside. If you want to come and follow Jesus, if you want to meet him at the table, then please come today. One of the reasons I wear these stoles is part of my ordination journey, but also to remind me that I'm serving Jesus in all of these things. This is all about Jesus. It's not about us. And we as pastors and leaders and worship leaders all want to sort of disappear from this space so that we as God's people meet Jesus here. I'm using a Lutheran epiphany, a, a, a Lutheran epiphany liturgy today, which may, that was a lot of words a Lutheran epiphany liturgy, which may for some of you really bring back some roots and for some of you it might be brand new and that's the joy of of praying these communion prayers. But we'll begin with the sort of traditional words. These words to open a communion liturgy have been used in the church for about 1,800 years. I mean, so they're well tested. They appear to be good words. The middle line, lift up your heart. So I wanna keep drawing our attention to that and particularly perhaps in the melancholy of, of epiphany. In the Latin, there's just two words there. It just translates as a command, up hearts. It's not me saying it to you, it's us saying it to ourselves. Heart, be lifted up. Because I don't know about you, have you noticed that sometimes your heart is not lifted up? (laughs) Sometimes your heart feels a little low. And there's this call at the beginning of this prayer, lift up your hearts, because we're coming to meet Jesus who has done everything for us. So let us begin. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts, and let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It It is right, almighty Lord, and so we praise your shining light, this epiphany, your glowing grace from before the earth's foundation, you loved us and promised us life forever. Within the earth's deep sadness, we laud your great and glorious might. Despite our tears and sinning, we sing of the gladness of your mercy. And so we proclaim this epiphany song together. We praise your son, our morning star. Christ is our diamond bright, our treasure dear. He is our living savior who has ransomed us in love. He keeps us yours and fails us never. Today, tomorrow, and forever. On the night before his great salvation, Jesus took bread and he blessed it. Giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to all to drink saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. And therefore with joy, we tell the story of our faith together. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. And we call upon you, Father, for your spirit upon us and this meal. Refresh our souls with this heavenly food, the body and blood of your son. Nourish us as branches of your tree and enlighten us with your undying flame. We sing out to you, Father. We ring out to the sun. We exalt in the spirit. Illuminate us through Christ, with Christ, and in Christ. Be for us the end and the beginning. And so we pray and praise. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. And these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So we're going to invite you to come and receive Eucharist together in just a moment. We are still learning all the ways of doing Eucharist slightly differently, more respectfully, but also not taking hours and hours of your time. We get that that's a challenge for us all. Today, we have some new Eucharist sets that we're going to use to serve you from four different points. These sets, by the way, if you're interested, are handmade by a retired priest and craftsman out of reclaimed Canadian maple. Prayed for and blessed and, and, and made for us as a community to come and receive the bread and the cup from. So if you, if you want, you can come. There'll be four spaces, two at the front, two in the middle, and you can come. If you're in the back section, come to the middle. If you're in this front section, come to the front. If you need an allergy aware uh, bread, you can just tell us and we will have one of them with us. Just let the pastor know who is serving you. Come as we have been doing with your hands open. Receive bread which has been dipped in the cup and take it immediately. And let me remind you, as always, if you're unable to come to the front, please let us know. We will bring the Eucharist to you. So I'm gonna serve the pastors who are gonna serve you in just a moment, but why don't you stand together? And we're gonna, often at this point in the liturgy, we would say the Lord's Prayer, but this time, we're gonna sing the Lord's Prayer together. David.